Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today we'll be discussing the way in which medieval Icelandic literature inspired the literary works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Joining me to discuss this topic is Dr. Armin Jakobsen, Professor of Medieval Icelandic Literature at the University of Iceland. Dr. Jakobsen, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, and I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Well, you know, the popularity of Tolkien's work has been unprecedented over the last century. The famous Lord of the Rings is one of the best-selling novels ever written, having sold over 150 million copies. Most people know that Tolkien had a great deal of academic interest in Old Norse language and myth, but how does this interest impact the popularity of his work? Well, his work is is very much influenced by his philological interests, and that, of course, includes interests in Old Norse. And uh, Icelanders who read Tolkien, of course, recognize his usage of Old Norse names, and especially the dwarf names in The Hobbit, very obvious influence. And, and um, this makes him interesting to Icelanders. Uh, of course, um, his work is ubiquitously popular also in Iceland. So it's, it's not... Um, I'm not sure to what extent the Icelandic um, influences have an impact, but it cert- they certainly make it more familiar to an Icelandic audience. Certainly, certainly. Um, now, throughout history, there have been many prolific literary cultures. Why was Tolkien attracted to the literature of medieval Iceland? And for Tolkien, where did that interest begin? Well, um, interest in Old Norse literature was quite um, prominent in England in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So, and it was mediated through children's books that Tolkien would have known. So it was sort of around. I think the, what was uncommon, what, how it joined his own interest for language, languages and, and natural affinity for languages. So, so he could manage to take a step deeper and, and learn the actual language. But in a way, it's it's not all that unusual, and um, also it's present him from an early age. So there's no particular encounter you can you can point to. His interest in Iceland precedes his his adult years. Now, in those days, were Old Norse studies and um, sort of medieval Icelandic literature studies more common in European universities than perhaps they are today, or was uh, material on that era in history and literature more widespread, would you say? Yeah, well, it, it, was, it was less common as a topic, and Tolkien indeed had a hand in establishing uh, readership in Old Norse at the University of Oxford. Like when he was professor in Oxford, he, he was one of the people who championed Icelandic Old Norse in particular as a special, special teaching chair. So he, he, in fact, brought Icelandic as a subject to Oxford. So, so, the, so he was influential in that way. Interesting, interesting. And um, do you know what particularly um, appealed to Tolkien in Icelandic literature? Why, what he saw in that, what made him want to bring um, medieval Icelandic literature to a place such as Oxford? Yeah, well, um, he had a great interest in language. And uh, as a Germanic language, 
Icelandic is interesting because there's a, a strong connection between the modern language and the medieval language, which is like probably more prominent in in the spelling than in the actual uh, pronunciation. So two people of Tolkien's generation, Icelandic is a representative for medieval Norse. So so more ancient possibly and thus more interesting. So he he was mainly interested in medieval Iceland and in the literature of medieval Iceland, beginning with Völsunga saga and then moving on to the Eddic poetry and to the Edda of Snorri Sturluson and also the Icelandic family sagas that he read. And he famously had a special reading group in Oxford called the Cold Biters, which was all about reading Icelandic sagas. And there are accounts of their meetings and Tolkien could read faster than anyone else present. So, so he, he had a gift for the language. Well, now let's just talk about Iceland for a moment. I, I have to ask, of all the places in Europe and the world during the Middle Ages, why was Iceland so special when it came to literature? Um, we've talked about this subject on my podcast before, but um, in your view, what made medieval Icelandic literature so special and unique? Well, there's, um, there's more preservation of, of medieval literature in Iceland than any other country of a similar size. And, and one thing you notice in Icelandic is the preservation of the common Germanic uh, poetry, like the Attic poetry in Iceland, is probably uh, descended from the Germanic poetry of the early Middle Ages. So, but, but we don't really have much uh, preserved of this poetry apart from Iceland. So Iceland, Iceland begins, you could say, by preserving older traditions and then inventing new traditions of their own. So, so, it, so it's a huge, but, but nobody can really answer, like why it became so big. It, it's, 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 it's a, it's a mystery in a way. Yeah, no question. Well, um, dealing with the preservation before we get back to Tolkien here. Does the geography of Iceland, the fact that it was an island, have anything to do with why the literature and the oral traditions were um, able to be so well preserved? Well, it's possible that it's it's a, it's an immigrant culture. So, Iceland is is recently settled in the High Middle Ages, and in immigrant cultures, there's often a strong awareness of tradition. So, possibly the the fact that Iceland is an immigrant culture makes Icelanders more interested in tradition than other 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 um, other people. So so that is possibly a factor. Well, when studying Tolkien's Icelandic influences, are there certain sources that he seems to be very keen on integrating into his own mythological worlds? Well, as I, as I said, um, in in the Hobbit, we have the dwarf names, and they are taken. Very directly from Völuspau. Völuspau very famously has uh, spends a lot of space on dwarf names, which is a strange thing, you know. Völuspau is a, a huge cosmological poem, possibly of some religious significance, and yet it takes a large amount of its space to just name dwarfs. So we have eight, nine verses of dwarf names 
that have seemingly no function in the poem. I don't know if you could imagine a modern film like the plot stops at minute 33 and instead we get 25, 30 minutes of pictures of dwarves that don't say anything or do anything. We just see their pictures. It's a bit similar. So it stops the narrative completely. So obviously the dwarves must have had a huge function in the the cosmology, but it's completely lost to us. And we don't know why why they're there. the dwarf names are there in all the three versions of Velospasa. They're not an addition. But Tolkien takes them uh, for his his novel, and then he uses them to establish the character of the dwarf that people nowadays see as the true portrayal of how medieval dwarves were perceived in Old Norse culture. But in actual, when we actually look at the role of dwarves in medieval literature, they are far more opaque than this, and they don't have such a firmly established character. So Tolkien, he in in fact creates from very scant evidence a very strong portrayal of dwarves. So it's a strong characterization based on relatively little material. And his basis is this uh, affinity between dwarves and stone, so he imagines the dwarves are somewhat heavy, solid, loyal, stubborn, resilient, prosaic, vindictive, and and uh, uh, materialistic. So 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 he, in effect, creates a very strong, realistic por- portrait of dwarves. But this is not really anything that you can be sure of from the very few sources that mention dwarves in the uh, in in old norse so he is not only well versed in the tradition he approaches it in a very creative way he fills the gaps and and his myths are in some way more powerful than the old myths because he has this uh, uh, liberty to create and this is the same with for example elves Elves do not have a very strong presence in Old Norse literature. The the word is often mentioned, but there are not, not that very not many elf characters, and it's very unsure what the elves actually are. And in the 20th century and the 19th century, people often regard elves as a kind of race, but the word seems to have a much broader function. So possibly, elves are not any. Uh, single race of supernatural beings. But Tolkien creates his own elves, both from Old Norse sources and then from later uh, Scandinavian and English, British sources. And he makes them very distinguishable and definable. I must stress that it is he, he has a considerable role in establishing how people today regard this traditional matter. And if you look at the actual instances in Old Norse text, we don't get the same clarity about how elves and dwarves are. So in a, in a way, his invention has been very um, uh, influential, and they are partly based on his knowledge of the medieval material, but also of his modern influences, like Tolkien originally came to the sagas as a regular reader, as a boy reader, and had his own sort of late romantic ideas. 
that were prevalent in, in children's literature of the time. Now, apart from the names, when talking about the iconic characters of uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and other pieces of Tolkien's work, I mean, just to name a few, you know, characters like Frodo Baggins and Bilbo Baggins, Gandalf the Grey, um, when Tolkien designs his characters, when he designs the sort of ethos of his characters in his literature, is there any notable evidence of him designing his characters based off of other characters, perhaps gods and heroes in Old Norse literature? Well, Gandalf is a name he takes from 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 um, uh, from uh, Old Norse sources, but the it is one of the dwarf names, and it is also a name of a king in Hemskringla. But in a way, there's no character there; there's just a name, and it means elf with a staff, and Tolkien translates this effectively in the characterization as wizard. Um, he has also said that he regards Gandalf as a partly Odinic figure, but I think he's mostly working with the idea of the supernatural helper. Like that's very uh, note noticeable in folklore, and Gandalf is a very good example of a supernatural helper, especially in the Hobbit, where he sort of is guiding the dwarves and Bilbo in particular on their journey. And uh, he makes him a, a mentor as well, a, a sort of paternal figure. And uh, Gandalf is, is, can also be viewed as kind of a comic example of a professor, you know, a teacher, somebody who's constantly making fun of his students. And Gandalf does this from the very beginning. He begins to mock Bilbo and he uses the same kind of methods that teachers used in the early 20th century. They're not quite as popular now. Maybe a form of the Socratic method that he is, he, exp he asks Bilbo, like, you know, what do you mean by <laughs> good morning? So every word has to be defined. And, and, and this, is, this is in a kind of Tolkien's way to present himself and other teachers, other professors of language as comic figures. And Gandalf always, he always um, keeps this, this, he retains this comic part of his uh, nature, but he evolves considerably in The Lord of the Rings. And in a way, that's a very nice touch, because this is also how parental figures evolve. They turn out to have a much larger life of their own, like we begin by defining them from completely based on our point of view, like what are they to us? And this is how he appears in The Hobbit as uh, completely from the view of The Hobbit. But then in The Lord of the Rings, he, he kind of gains of more of his own identity. And we get a more stronger view of what he actually is. So, th so this is a very, I think, clever characterization based on, 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 on fairly little inspiration from Old Norse. And even though I don't want to make light of Tolkien's use of Old Norse, it is essentially his own gifts as novelist and, and narrator that really makes uh, his use of the medieval material so special. Certainly when talking about um, The Hobbit, uh, for a moment, one of the most famous of Tolkien's works, um, that that probably has a an intrinsic connection to the saga of the Volsungs. I mean, the legend of 
Sigurd the Dragon Slayer and, you know, the sort of magical ring of power. I mean, even within that subtitle that um, I believe can be found on Jesse Biok's translation of the uh, the saga, one is immediately drawn into this um, relationship between, you know, the dragon smog and, um, you know, Fafnir and then um, Sigurd and um, yeah. other, you know, characters within The Hobbit. Yeah, the inspiration... Uh... Uh, of Fafnir, especially the poem Fafnir's Mouth, but also Volsungasaga, where the Sigurd doesn't only kill the dragon, he converses with him. They have a conversation, and Fafnir gives him advice. So they, though they have a fairly civilized conversation, it's not just a hero slaying a beast. Fafnir retains a human quality, and that's evident in how he talks to. Sigurdur, and you can also see kind of um, cleverness and possibly insidious cleverness in how Fafnir talks to Sigurdur. Fafnir is attempting to turn Sigurdur against his own brother Reyn, who is instrumental in the killing of a dragon. So Fafnir is using his wiles to 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 like uh, affect the situation, and and you can see when Bilbo meets Mauk. It is more or less the same thing. Smaug is not just uh, bestial and large and physically dangerous. His conversation is also very dangerous. And it's clever and surprisingly polite. Smaug condescends to Bilbo constantly, but in a fairly polite way. And it, It's a very well-written conversation. Tolkien really could did conversations well and and the dragon says like when Bilbo was attempting to sound pompous by giving himself you know riddle riddle like titles the dragon says lovely titles at one point so he sort of punctuates uh, uh, Bilbo and and you know it could be argued that he is another fa- father figure and that would be taken from Fafnir as well because Reyn the the foster father of Sigurdur is Fafnir's brother, so Fafnir is a kind of bad uncle to Sigurdur. And there are strange mentions of Bilbo's father in this chapter, just before he meets the dragon. So the dragon, in a way, is in a paternal role to Bilbo as well, which is interesting. So it's, And um, this is a conflict that is far more cerebral, than perhaps the reader might expect at this point. So the Bilbo, he never really battles against the dragon. His fight with the dragon is purely on a conversational level, which is very interesting. And this is like, uh, you could say, a turn of this novel, The Hobbit, that begins as a very simple quest to slay the dragon. Then in the middle, in about the time the, the Bilbo meets the dragon, it suddenly becomes very complicated and it doesn't follow the quest pattern it previously did. Now, when talking about sort of myth and magic during the, the Viking Age and particularly that, that, it, that which is demonstrated in Old Norse and medieval Icelandic literature, uh, there is certainly in the fantasy novels of J.R.R. Tolkien an element of magic and wizardry and magical rings and um, all of these sort of Things that are beyond uh, human control, uh, but are perhaps controlled by certain 
individuals such as wizards, the wizard Gandalf the Grey, and um, powers which are beholden to only a select few. Um, and that certainly is present in Old Norse literature, this idea of yeah. you know mythological beings capable of certain abilities. I mean, you have Valkyries, which are capable of intervening in, in man's fate, and the gods, which are capable of other abilities as well. Does this whole concept of sort of fantasy and magic that is demonstrated in Tolkien's works, is that something that is clearly um, a product of the influence of Old Norse literature as well? Well, you know, partly, you know, witchcraft is very prominent in the Old Norse literature. Tolkien changes all this, like the point of view in particular in, in, in his Silmarillion. He... His, the narrative style is not too unlike that of the medieval sources themselves. So, like, very strangely, in, in Snorretta, the gods are not really in a superior position. The point of view is the gods themselves, so they don't get seen as, like, higher figures. Like, we are with them instead of uh, uh, looking up to them. But in the both in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien constantly adapts the point of view of the least influential person, like the smallest person, the person who knows the least about what's actually happening. And in this way, he manages to convey, like, what is it like to be a regular person in this world that is controlled by higher beings. And this is very... This is very non-medieval. In most of the medieval sources, the point of view is not with the lower orders. It's usually with somebody who's fairly high up themselves. So he is, in a way, turning it all on its head. Um, uh, I have been very interested in, in witchcraft in the, in the sagas and wrote a book about it called The Troll Inside You. And witchcraft or magic is often re regarded as like a marginal thing in the sagas, but I think it's a, it's a fundamental part of this literature. And the sagas I refer to in this book are mostly so-called realistic sagas. It's not fantastical sagas. It's the sagas we regard as realistic. And they still, there's still a lot of witchcraft and magic in, in them. And I met a professor of sociology recently and told him about this project of mine and he said uh, so you're inter not interested in society and i said the par the paranormal the supernatural it's all about society it's all about um, an interest in the supernatural tells you so much about society and the how the supernatural appears in these sagas it tells you so much about how medieval people regarded things such as class, as age, uh, race, um, the foreigners versus the natives, etc. So witchcraft is in a way a prism that helps us to, to view society. And it's very complicated how it appears in the, in the, in the Old Norse sagas. And Tolkien uses parts of it in his work, not all of it. Uh, he's clearly interested in ghosts, and you see that in the ring race, in the in the um, 
Lord of the Rings, and also possibly in the figure of Gollum that sort of accidentally enters the Hobbit and then becomes a much more important figure in the Lord of the Rings, and also in the figure of Frodo Baggins himself. And in this, you can discern in Tolkien this very same uh, methods he uses in all his all his uh, influences from Old Norse, that he approaches things in a very creative way, and he is an interpreter. He is thinking, what is a ghost? What is it like to be a ghost? How do you become a ghost? And and I find his, as somebody who studied ghosts and, and other witchcraft very extensively myself, I find his uh, treatment of the ghosts very... Um, original and convincing and 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 clever. So, and and he stresses through the ring itself. He stresses the relationship between the good ghosts and the bad ghosts. So we have both like the ring wraiths, whom the reader is not invited to empathize with, and then we have Frodo, who's becoming more and more wraith-like through the novel. So he's turning into a ghost. And and in the end, it turns out that he is not allowed to return to the world. That's something that some readers miss the first time they read the book. They think it ends well, but it doesn't really end, end well. It ends with the main protagonist having to leave Middle-earth. So this is, this is something, this is, this is a very, like, deep discussion of Tolkien's. The last question I'll ask you today, Dr. Jakobsen, is is this. Um, we've talked a, a great deal about the different sources for Norse myth on this podcast before. Do you think Tolkien used Snorri Sturluson's prose edda as one of his sources, or do you think he was more keen to focus on the sort of elder poetic edda and um, the Icelandic sagas as well? He was very familiar with Snorri Sturluson, obviously. And uh, I, 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 I sense, I haven't really written much about the Silmarillion, but I do sense uh, a relationship between the narrative style of his earliest works and, and the Snorri Edda. In the, in the, in the, and, you know, Snorri has light elves and dark elves, he mentions them in his Edda, and this is something that clearly influences Tolkien. Tolkien, when he's talking about orcs and elves, the idea that orcs are somehow a corrupt version of elves. So, so Snorri is also uh, also influential, but uh, the point of view is very different. Like the point of view adopted in Snorri that makes the gods very human. Uh, and in a way, the gods are fighting against superior forces, which is kind of echoes in the Lord of the Rings as well. You may remember when Frodo meets Galadriel. She says something about that they have fought the long defeat. So the idea that all their struggle is a long defeat, this is, I think, influenced by Old Norse. Tolkien himself mentions the idea of Ragnarok, in his essay about Beowulf and finds it interesting there. 
that the Old Norse myths are in the Old Norse myths, the gods are destined to lose the battle. There's no final battle that the gods win. There is a final battle where the gods lose and all the main gods are killed. So people who believe in the Old Norse gods, they believe in gods that are eventually going to be overthrown and to lose the final battle. And in Tolkien's view, this took more courage. He was interested in the courage of the Old Norse uh, believers and the whole Lord of the Rings is a history of loss because the elves are leaving from the very beginning and the end and there is no victory for the elves so the elves are elevated the reader is invited to like them best as most of Tolkien's characters do and he clearly himself does but there's, they will not celebrate victory with them victory means the elves leave anyway so this is something, I think, that came from the Edda of Snorri Sturluson and the idea of Ragnarök. And, and the idea of Ragnarök is most prominent in the work of Snorri, but it's also present in Völuspel. It's not present in all that many other sources. So, so, so his interpretation of, of Ragnarök clearly has an impact on, on what I have described here about the sense of loss, the sense of defeat that characterizes the whole Lord of the Rings. Indeed. Well, Dr. Jakobsen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to learn more about the Norse gods, visit my friends at Ancient History Encyclopedia and read their excellent array of articles on the Old Norse gods at ancient.eu. And of course, you'll find links to these articles in the description of this episode. 